You're listening to the Monocle Daily, first broadcast on the 5th of December 2023 on Monocle Radio. The second stage of Israel's assault on Gaza takes shape. The EU continues to argue over whether to spend Russia's frozen money on Ukraine and is there any justification for behind-the-back bickering? I'm Andrew Muller. The Monocle Daily starts now. Hello and welcome to the Monocle Daily, coming to you from our studios here at Midori House in London. I'm Andrew Muller. My guests Annette Dittert and Sir Mark Lowcock will discuss today's big stories and we'll take a tour of what was the first Palestinian museum in the United States. Stay tuned, all that and more coming up right here on the Monocle Daily. This is the Monocle Daily. I'm Andrew Muller and I am joined today by Annette Dittert, a senior correspondent for German broadcaster ARD, and Sir Mark Lowcock, fellow of the Centre for Global Development and former head of humanitarian affairs at the United Nations. Hello to you both. Hello, Andrew. Uh, Mark, first of all, I understand that you have, as people often do at this time of year, been making a list, a a top ten of particular sorts of stuff one might have enjoyed during the year. You have been listing books. So my book of the year, Andrew, is by Jane Martinson. It's called You May Never See Us Again. And it's a gripping, uh, almost like a spy story telling the tale of Freddie and David Barclay, these couple of um, identical twins who, in the wake of the rubble of London in the after the Second World War, created a property empire which eventually extended to the Ritz Hotel and who also, for many years, owned the Daily Telegraph, which now is a source of great controversy and angst at the top ranks of the Conservative Party <laughs> in this country because as the leading right of centre broadsheet, there's a great fight over whether in future the Daily Telegraph should be allowed to be owned by the United Arab Emirates and the worthies of the Conservative Party do not want a Gulf state owning their in-house rag. Which, uh, which is hilarious because they never had a problem with an Australian here <laughs> and uh, having the ti- owning the Times and others. And they want actually probably, I mean, that's what one might suspect, uh, one of their friends to buy it up, obviously. And uh, yeah, it will be an interesting, interesting debate, but they seem to be really intent on, on blocking this. Uh, Annette, so. do, do you have a book of the year? What, I mean, people may be listening to us soliciting Christmas <laughs> gift advice. Yes, I so do. It's a weighty responsibility. I've just, yeah, well, I mean, it's not the funniest book of the year, maybe, but it's really interesting by Ian Dunt, who's mm-hmm. quite famous on Twitter for his rants. And he wrote a book, How Westminster Works and why it doesn't. And it's not a rant, like people know him from Twitter or X, as we have to say now, but it's a really <laughs> constructive, interesting book. You've read it as well. No? And I, as someone who spent 30 years of their adult life working inside <laughs> Westminster, so you really... I was expecting a rant. And yes. you're right, it's constructive and interesting and well worth the cover price. Yeah, absolutely. And I learned a lot of things about Westminster where I always thought, okay, this this doesn't really work well, but I never knew why. And he really explains it and also has has a recipe how to change it. Okay, well, you, you've made me want to read both of those <laughs> books, uh, and hopefully that will have the same effect on our listeners. I was going to recommend my own book of the year, but checking it now on a hunch, I see that it actually came out in 2017, and I only happened to cross it in an airport bookshop uh, this year. It is uh, Craig Brown's book, Ma'am Darling, uh, his episodic history of the life of Princess Margaret, which on the face of it is not a book I would read 
unless I saw the name Craig Brown on the cover, because he is one of those people who, I mean, just anything he writes is worth reading. And that he has sat in that very chair, in oh, fact, really? <laughs> uh, talking about, I think, his more recent book about the Beatles, which I also recommend. So anyway, three books there for people to chew on. Um, not literally, of course, that would be ridiculous. Uh, we will start the show properly uh, in the Middle East. And earlier today, Israel said that its troops had reached the heart of Khan Yunus, the Gaza Strip's second biggest city. This suggests a significant escalation of Israeli activity in the south of Gaza, which is also crowded with people who have fled earlier Israeli operations in the north of Gaza, where in other recent developments, Israel has surrounded Jabalia, which it claims Hamas was using as some kind of forward operating base. It remains unclear, however, exactly how Israel proposes to accomplish or indeed measure its principal war aim of comprehensively dismantling Hamas. One picturesque report doing the rounds suggests a plan to flood Hamas's network of subterranean tunnels with seawater. Um, Mark, first of all, um, the surrounding of Jabalia, uh, and I'm not sure as yet if that is a portent of some sort of further decisive action against uh, Jabalia, but is the possibility that it is or was some sort of Hamas stronghold entirely implausible? I mean, I, it's a long time since I was last in Jabalia, but judging by the proliferation um, of pro-Hamas billboards, uh, I, I, I saw, I, I, I suspect they were not strangers to the area. I think it's very difficult to know. I, I think the truth is Hamas and its supporters are a small proportion of the population <coughs> of Gaza, and the debate that this... Uh, surrounding the refugee camp has fired up again is whether Israel is acting in a way which is consistent with international humanitarian law. You're not allowed to conduct sieges, you're not allowed to starve civilians, and you have to act in a way that's proportionate. And I've bounced into that proportionality problem myself. Mm. I spent quite a lot of hours arguing with Putin's generals and diplomats as they were with their Syrian friends carpet bombing northwestern Syria on the grounds they said that there were thousands of affiliates of al-Qaeda in that part of Syria. And what we were saying to them was, well, but there's a 100 civilians, most of them children, for every alleged fighter. And can you not find a more proportionate way to do what you say you want to do? And of course, other states dealing with this kind of problem have found different techniques. Famously, the US with Osama bin Laden had a very targeted approach, as they did with taking out Hassan Soleimani, the head of the Iranian militia in and January 2020. It, it, Israel itself has a history of targeting individuals. And so the question that arises is, could they not take a slightly more targeted approach in what's happening now, I, I think myself that the seawater in the tunnel thing, which some people have been talking about today, is a little bit, you know, sci-fi. People want mm. the story as something new to talk about, a bit like that story we saw two or three weeks ago about European navies um, taking on their own volition aid goods into the port of Gaza, which, of course, could never happen unless the Israeli authorities wanted to tolerate it. Um, Annette, do you perceive, since hostilities recommenced, any moderation at all of Israel's approach? They were being, prior to the recent ceasefire, there were increasingly unsubtle hints from the United States that uh, America's patience with Israel's approach was ebbing somewhat. Um, Israel has been at pains to suggest that they are trying to alert uh, people in Gaza which parts of it are safe and which parts of it are not uh, to reiterate 
Gaza, the Gaza Strip is tiny. It is extremely crowded, uh, and under the kind of operations, <clears throat> excuse me, that Israel seemed to be conducting, it's hard to imagine where the actually safe places might still be. Um, nevertheless, do you get the sense that Israel has? even if grudgingly listened to the United States and moderated its approach at all? It doesn't look like it. I mean, it's very hard to say what's really <laughs> happening down there. I mean, that's something that's so difficult for journalists, especially in this war, because we don't get any really verified information. But from what you see, I mean, the, the pictures you see, and when you think about Gaza and how small it is, I mean, they've now uh, residents there who have already been displaced before and have been struggling coming down from the north crammed into this shrinking corner of southern Gaza and are bombing it again. So um, I I find this whole situation increasingly tragic, really. I mean, in the genuine, mm. uh, literate meaning of the world, because uh, there is there is no no good option here, increasingly, because, I mean, this is now like 10, 15,000 dead civilians. Uh, the IDF has, has uh, more or less said these numbers are correct. I mean, they are claiming 5,000 were Hamas people. I mean, Hamas agents, but I mean, that's hard to verify as well. But I mean, there's a terrible price Israel will pay in the end for this. If you look into Arab media, papers, digital magazines, I mean, um, the, the Arab countries are... are in so much pain as well, although they don't really support Palestine either. And and on the other hand, Israel will also, would also pay a terrible price if it would leave intact Gaza with, with a murderous Hamas. But on mm. the other hand, you cannot kill an idea or an ideology. And Hamas is an idea and an ideology um, born out of despair. And they're creating more despair. So it's it's a yeah, genuine tragedy. And I really don't see where this will lead, uh, apart from Israel being having even more animus in that area. Mark, your former organisation is, of course, very much at the heart of this. The United Nations currently says that at least 101 of its own employees have been killed in Gaza. The UN is a, a substantial employer of people in Gaza. But does it strike you at a moment like this that the UN is a useful forum or a useful agency for dealing with a crisis like this? Because it does keep running up against the fact that it can only do ultimately what the Security Council will sign off on. And the United States is one of five countries that, <clears throat> excuse me, gets to decide what that is. Well, I, there's two things I would say about that. The first is, however bad the situation, you do need a forum to discuss it mm. in. And if we didn't have the Security Council for all its problems, we would need to invent something like it. The second, though, is that um, the UN is well used to dealing with crises where one or multiple participants don't want them to engage and what you have to do is just work hard and persuade everyone on all sides that their interests ultimately are better served by the whole population not simply losing their lives as a result of the crisis and that's why as part of the deal during the pause there was an agreement that the UN would take 200 trucks a day of humanitarian aid in so um, the the point you made at the beginning, Andrew, is one I think that people haven't fully understood the ramifications of. In the first 75 years of exi its existence, the UN lost a total of 169 aid workers, so two a year. Mm. So to lose more than 100 in less than two months is very shocking to lots of UN people. And um, Annette quoted the 10,000 or 15,000 figure of total Palestinian civilian deaths so far. That is 
probably more than the number of Ukrainian citizens who have been killed since Putin's war started in Ukraine. So the numbers of particularly children and women who are losing their lives is starting to become a bigger and bigger issue. Um, just one final thought on this one, Annette, before we move on to a semi-related subject. Uh, France has today announced, and this is interesting, a six-month freeze on the assets of Yahya Sinwar. He's the Hamas chief in Gaza, widely believed to be a primary architect of the, the massacres of October the 7th. Um, the French have been a bit cagey about precisely what value these assets hold uh, and exactly what they are. But what does it tell us that a creature like Yahya Sinwar actually has assets in France that are worth freezing? I, I thought that was rather surprising when I read that <clears throat> today because I, I, I didn't even know he had assets there. And I was wondering if that was the case, why does France react so late? Mm. And, and I mean, where they, they, else? May, they may not have known, of course. Of course. But I mean, that's an interesting case. I mean, that's the other other thing why Hamas won't be killed or eradicated in Gaza. They're everywhere else. And uh, I thought it was quite interesting that France finally acted on that, but I think it's it's quite late, but I would li like to see other countries looking into their um, into their finances and whether but I it, mean, it, they it, have parked it, their money everywhere else as well. It, it isn't, and I'll ask you about this as well, Mark, because it is interesting that, to be clear, this is not a sanction against Hamas as an organisation. This mm -hmm. is against Yahya Sinwar as an individual. It would, of course, not be the first time that some pious revolutionary has stashed a few quid in a foreign bank account in case of eventualities. Indeed. Uh, I think what this illustrates is what sanctions are used for, actually. The, the sanction is, um, in this case, signalling displeasure and disassociation from something. That's what the French are trying to do. Um, and sanctions do cause mild irritation. There's lots, for example, of elite Russians who can no longer come and enjoy the high life here in the expensive bits of London. And that's a mild irritation to them. It's not more than that, but it is but it is a signal that's sent. And of course, President Macron has recently been very outspoken in the other direction on asking, well, how long is this war in Gaza going to go on? And so I think this is a, a sort of signal to balance that out a little yeah. bit. No, I agree. I think Macron had something to do there as well. I, I was just surprised that it came so relatively late. Well, we will stick with the subject of frozen assets because the idea is once again at large of using the proceeds of frozen Russian assets to pay to fix some of what Russia has broken in Ukraine. Spain, currently taking its turn at the EU presidency, has pointed out that the interest on Russian central bank reserves frozen in the EU could cover some 17 billion euros worth of EU grants to Ukraine between here and 2027. There is, however, an amount of disagreement with this plan, some suggesting that any such rake-off should be considered a bonus rather than a substitute, others believing Russian assets should be seized entirely, and others a bit wary on the whole property rights and legality front. Um, and that the, the European Commission wants to unveil some sort of proposal covering this on December 12th, i.e. next week. Um, are we keen on the chances of this ever actually happening? I, I don't really see that. I mean, there is so much disagreement in between the different EU leaders. And also, I think this proposal will probably interfere with national taxes, other measures. The European Central Bank is very sceptical about it. I think it's a very complicated thing whether such a windfall tax, what it, what it is in the end, would be legally doable without further complications. It's a nice idea. I can't see it uh, being really 
done in practice? Uh, Mark, there is a, there would appear at least an obvious natural justice to this idea. Russia smashed Ukraine up, therefore Russia should pay to fix it again. Um, It's not really that simple, though, is it? I think it's worth asking why this is coming up now. And it's, mm. I think, because... It's, it's not the first time. This idea does keep being floated, often very optimistically, by Ukrainians. But one of the reasons it's coming up now is because the EU all agree, as does the whole of the West, <coughs> that there's a need to provide huge economic support to Ukraine. And uh, the they've got problems with their internal budgetary situation, particularly in the wake of a yeah, court ruling in Germany. <coughs> so this looks like the magic money, uh, magic money tree coming to the rescue. Yeah, but it won't but, help really. I but think. as Annette says, I think the problems are precedent. You do this once, people don't want to put their money in your banks because they mm-hmm. think they might do it to you. Giving up leverage at some point, there might be an end to the war and then an offer to the Russians mm. of having their assets unfrozen is useful. And then legal issues, which you touched on, Andrew, are very complex. Well, I mean, Annette, it does it does stick in the craw somewhat, obviously, having to extend the, the common courtesies in Russia's direction. But do you sympathise with the argument which is made uh, against this idea that those assets belong to the Russian nation rather than the Russian government, which is potentially and frankly, ideally, a, a temporary imposition? I mean, it's, it's a complex thing. I think the idea is basically not wrong at all. I I do agree that if that was possible, they could do that because, I mean, Russia is smashing up Ukraine. So why shouldn't their assets uh, be used for repairing at least some of them? But I I don't think it's legally doable. And that's why I think it's a little bit of a waste of time because they have so many issues at this summit that is coming up on the 14th and 15th of December in Brussels that they should rather concentrate on that because they need to get their budget together, which will be hugely complicated. Um, the, you wanted to top it up by 100 billion until until 2027, so over the next four years. And uh, apparently, I've just talked to my Brussels colleagues today. There is no no um, yeah silver thrive on the horizon at the moment that they will really get to that. It will be a very complicated summit. Uh, on getting this budget together because Germany is in deep trouble. The Netherlands has no government yet and instead Gerd Wilders, the far-right anti-Islamist um, uh, winner who is uh, emboldening Orban even more to veto everything Brussels wants wants to do. I mean, this will be one of the most complicated summits uh, I think they'll have had for, will have for a long time. So I, I personally think they should rather stray, work, work on getting the act together on the budget straight away. Uh, Mark, just finally, on this, we are regrettably, I think, a long way from serious considerations about what kind of compensation, restitution, punishment should be visited upon uh, Russia for what it has done in Ukraine over the last couple of years in particular. But is there much useful talk occurring, do you think, about how that should work? Is Europe still uh, haunted at some level by the, the, the spectre of Versailles, where, uh, you know, obviously at the end of World War One, beating up on Germany seemed like a good idea at the time, uh, and it was widely held that that stored up further trouble 21 years down the track? Well, I hope they're preoccupied by that, because that was a you know, led to some very bad follow-up problems, what happened in as a result of the Treaty of Versailles. I think what what you... Uh, the way I look at all these proposals that have come forward for the use of other people's money is each country's reaction tells you about whether they're a winner or loser from this particular proposition. <laughs> so the Italians 
were um, not very keen on the top slicing of the overall EU budget because they thought they'd lose out from that. They were quite cheerful about the idea of um, giving away the frozen assets because their banks didn't have too many of them. So what this really tells you is how each country sees the fine detail of the specific proposition. Not for the first time I am reminded of the wisdom of the Australian Prime Minister Paul Keating, who, like a good Australian Prime Minister, used a horse racing, used a horse racing analogy uh, when he said, in any race, bet on self-interest, it's always a trier. Um, but we will move along uh, to Africa, and conflicts in Africa do struggle for global attention, even when there are not major wars raging in Europe and the Middle East. When there are, even conflicts as sizable as the ones presently gripping Sudan and Ethiopia drop a distance beneath the headlines. Eight months in, the war in Sudan appears to be escalating sufficiently to prompt fears that the state could fail and or disintegrate. Last week, the UN Security Council voted to abandon its mission in Sudan. In Ethiopia, meanwhile, fighting in the Amhara region is ongoing, as is chatter about the prospect of a war with neighbouring foe-turned-friend-turned-foe, etc., etc., Eritrea. Um, Mark, first of all, to Sudan, if the world, and I guess by the world we do mean the United Nations, was actually serious about doing something, and if consensus could be obtained on the Security Council that this is intolerable, we must fix this, what would that something actually look like? Well, firstly, this is a very big problem, Mm. and the behaviour of the two belligerents, Hemeti, the head of the uh, so-called Rapid Support Forces, Mm -hmm. which was alleged to be responsible 15 years ago for a genocide in Darfur, and then the formal um, Sudan Armed Forces, the behaviour has been described by UN people as pure evil. And and 25 million people across the country now in need of humanitarian assistance, 7 million people fled their homes. This is a very big problem. And in a quieter world, we'd all be talking about it a lot more. What you could do if you wanted to is things like stop the flow of arms into the country. You could stop the um, parties bankrolling themselves. In the case of um, Hermeti and the RSF, for example, you could stop him exporting all his gold, which he's using to pay his forces. You could um, beef up and reinforce the role that the Africa Union has tried to play in getting some diplomacy to to be brought to bear. You could um, get the countries which are supporting either side uh, together in a room and put a bit more pressure on them. The, the attempts that have been made on all those things so far through talks in Jeddah haven't had enough of the force of international weight behind them. And that's one reason why they haven't been successful. Just to follow that up quickly, Mark, do you, do you think the world, again, as personified by the UN and particularly the Security Council members, and the Security Council P5 in particular, has completely lost appetite for the idea of, for example, sending in a few brigades of actual professional soldiers and saying, does anybody fancy trying this on someone their own size? The problem is that the cases where that has worked well over the last 30, 40 years or so have tended to be quite small, and Mm. these are both quite big. Uh, The UN did, of course, have a peace operation in on the border between Eritrea and mm-hmm. Ethiopia 20 years ago at, at the time of the last war between them. I, I do just want to say on Tigray, which you pointed, uh, you, you started with, Andrew, mm. the latest estimates I've seen are that a million people have been killed in the famine caused by the war and the blockade in Tigray. Now, We'll all remember 1984, where Ethiopia came to all our attention and created Live Aid and Band Aid and everything that followed that 
where also a million people died. And even among the very well-informed listeners of The Daily Show, <laughs> I suspect there's not, it's not 90% of people who know that another million people have died in a famine there. And the lack of attention is a huge problem. Well, on that lack of attention, Annette, and this is where we can do some, you know, beard stroking about the role of the media here. It, it's, a, it's a very common complaint that the Western media tends to zone out of, of wars in Africa. But why is that? Is, is there the obvious and somewhat sinister and discreditable um, explanation for that, which is that we simply take less interest in the, in the suffering of, of you know, people who do not seem familiar to us, who do not look like us, who live what we feel like is a long way from us, even though uh, Khartoum is, is rather closer than Gaza or Jerusalem? Um, or or is it, does it often just come down to logistics, the fact that reporting from Israel is it's easier than reporting from Sudan or Ethiopia? I think it's both. And I mean, also, if you look at the structures and the logistics, ARD and most Western media, also the BBC, has very few uh, foreign offices there. Mm -hmm. I mean, we have two or three ARD, and the BBC is much better, a little bit. But overall, there is just, I mean, logistics, the logistics tell you something about prejudices. So it's, it's really very difficult because there's not many journalists in Africa who cover these stories. And uh, I I find this even more astonishing in a way because, I mean, it's also climate change that plays a role Mm -hmm. in all this. And the whole debate on refugees, illegal, irregular migrants, however you want to call them, has a lot to do with what's happening there. Because if we don't solve the problems there, we will have ever more people coming to Europe. Which is nobody talks about it. Which is a self-interest argument that that governments seem kind of shy of trying to make. That's, That's what I find so fascinating. It's not only sort of a lack of interest there, but it should be a self-interest to look at what's going on then. It isn't. So just to come back to what Annette was just saying, can I, as the non-media professional <laughs> in, the, in the trio, come to the defence of the media? Oh, please. Because, we, we, we love that. Because <laughs> actually without the media, and I've seen stories on Sudan um, recently saying um, a genocidal militia is winning the war, you know, very graphic things. And one of the world's best known, most respected weekly newspapers, I've seen a story, Ethiopia is deliberately starving its own citizens. I think... High-class media is covering this to Mm. a degree, but, you know, The Daily Show is a half-hour show. The News at 10 on the BBC is a half-hour show. There's a limited amount of time Mm -hmm. to get stories across. I think that's the biggest problem. I think journalists, and I certainly found this at the UN, want to cover these big stories. It's a question of fitting them in with lots of other things in the news cycle. It's also always just one war that really works. I mean, it's the same with Ukraine. I mean, Ukraine mm-hmm. has almost is almost not featuring and is, is almost not happening anymore in the news since Israel happened. And I think these kind of strange uh, cycles uh, where we can't do to stay, to remain critical of the media, where we can't do more than telling one story is also usually out of proportion when you look at the tragedies in Africa that are also affecting us uh, just, later. Just one practical point, uh, Mark, about the realities of dealing with a situation like Ethiopia from the point of view of the UN. There was a suspension of aid from the UN in the United States, or is or was, due to concerns about corruption, stuff going astray 
etc. Did that strike you as a reasonable response? Is it overly cynical of me to suggest? And I, I have reported from quite a lot of places where aid is being delivered. Is it not generally understood that some of it is going to get nicked and this is basically just the cost of doing business? There is a bit of that simply because and I remember encountering this in Somalia during the famine in 2011, if you're dealing with a bunch of vagabonds with Kalashnikovs on the back of trucks, you can't protect every food handout. I think what happened in Ethiopia, though, was something involving, allegedly, according to news reports, the Ethiopian military taking what was described as industrial-scale levels of food aid to to a degree that... The US, who's the biggest provider of it, particularly through the World Food Programme, just found it intolerable. But there's no no question that one consequence of that is has been that there's very little food aid getting through to northern Ethiopia, and that is unfortunately accelerating the loss of life. Well, well brought up people, and you, like you would be listening to the Monocle Daily if you weren't, are raised according to the precept that if one has nothing to, nice to say about a person, one should say nothing. What if, however, cloistered bickering about colleagues, friends, family members, podcast guests is actually demonstrably good for you? A school of thought adumbrated on the internet holds that the historical record is replete with examples from the Hittites and Babylonians onwards of folks slagging each other off. The conclusion is surely that we must be doing this for some reason beyond our own puerile amusement. Would anybody here, Mark or Annette, like to confess to being a malicious gossip? Occasionally. (laughs) It very much depends on the weather. Uh, I mean, (laughs) there are those that would argue that as journalists we actually trade in malicious gossip. It's our job as well as our hobby. No, I think it's sort of something that happens in offices for a reason because you have to find your your place, your spot in the tribe. And I mm. think it's quite a healthy thing of interacting with the crew. I'm just always wondering what happens with more and more people sitting at home in their home office thingies. How do you do that? Oh, no, um, I, I, I mean, I, I, I worked solidly at home for years as a freelance writer. And you managed it's, to do that. It's much, much easier. You can just you can just call up other people in the same situation. You can decide to go out for a, a long lunch. Mm-hmm. Uh, no, the, the, no, the opportunities are endless. Okay. Uh, I mean, Mark, do you subscribe at all to this slightly high-minded justification uh, for it, that it is, it's it's a form of group bonding, you establish mutual shared values, can we agree that, for example, this behaviour by our mutual colleague, acquaintance or whatever is unacceptable? Are we the kind of people who agree on that much and so on? I think it definitely forms a bonding purpose. I used to select people to work in my front office at the UN on the basis of whether they would have a very good deadpan. In other words, when I was interacting with some despot or their military representative um, and getting nowhere and trying to persuade them to behave slightly more humanely, the, the colleague would have to have a very good deadpan. But then after the meeting, they would have to be very good at helping me vent mm-hmm. my fury at the nonsense we just had to sit through so that the venting moment was over by the time we bumped into the next despot we were about to <laughs> do business with. Um, and so, yes, it's a very important bit of um, bureaucratic office organisational life. And pick your venting colleagues well, Andrew, is my mm. advice, because you don't want to find yourself appearing in the gossip columns. Well, indeed not. Yeah, um, did, did, did you did you have a particular venting regime, Mark? Did are, are you are you a hurler of crockery? Do you kick things? Do you do you scream or do you do the sort of more internalised sort of mm, kind of thing? So I'm going to have to 
tell the truth here, Andrew, because I know some of my former colleagues are listening to this because <laughs> I was talking to them earlier um, earlier today, including some of my colleagues in Sudan. Uh, no, I'm a quiet fury person mm-hmm. who then... Um, a seether. Thro- a seether who mm. doesn't then um, throw toys out of the pram, but I, I can develop a long and cynical and extended version of what an evil <laughs> so and so that person we were just dealing with was um, and Annette what, what, what is your style where this is concerned um, I used to, to throw things around when I was younger but, <laughs> <laughs> but I gave up on this at some point because it looks a bit childish and I've become a more quiet venter as well now comes with age I, 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 did want, I did want to ask you both in turn I'll ask you first Annette are there particular character traits in a colleague friend professional acquaintance family member whatever that are more likely to prompt you to bitch about them when you think you are in safe company I, I, I will open with this a, a bit like Mark I suspect what what I absolutely cannot abide is a uh, how to put it it's it's a, a, a panicker a flat a catastrophist, somebody who makes a thing out of everything. Um, I, I find that kind of person extremely difficult to deal with. Yeah, I totally, can totally relate to that. I, I find most annoying when people have a total lack of, of humour. Mm-hmm. And that happens in Germany quite a lot. <laughs> uh, see, you, you, <laughs> and that's not, I, I can say that being Yeah, German, I, exactly. You noticed but... <laughs> the way that Mark and I left that one for you to snap up. We were far too polite. Maybe that's why I'm here in, in Britain, <laughs> because that doesn't happen here as often as it does in Berlin. <laughs> I, I, I will say, and not just because you are sitting here, though, Annette, that that is one stereotype that in my own experience I have found just basically does not hold up. Most Germans I've met have had absolutely excellent uh, senses of humour. It depends. It depends which region they come from, I would say. I mean, I, I might know them a little bit better. You might have been surprised at some point because your cliches maybe or your prejudice was stronger, but there is some some dryness that is can be a bit boring and really a bit Are, are there any particular regions of Germany that you would like to enter into the spirit of this conversation by um, bitching maliciously about? Not really. <laughs> I have friends in, in all these areas, so I'd rather shut up here. Um, Mark, is, is there a particular character trait which is more likely to make you gossip or bitch or vent to your designated ventee? Well, uh, the psychopaths portraying themselves as angels. <laughs> yeah. uh, they, they, I had a problem ha- with them. They are hard to like. I, those I had a problem with them. And you had quite a lot of them. <coughs> More than the my share, I think. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I, I, I suspect we can probably get into this in much more detail off-air, unfortunately. Uh, but for the moment, Annette Dittert uh-huh. and Sir Mark Lowcock, thank you both for joining us. Finally, on today's show, in a nondescript building in Woodbridge, Connecticut, you will find the Palestine Museum. The building's owner and founder is Faisal Saleh, a Palestinian-American businessman. He took Monocle's Washington, D.C. correspondent Correspondent Chris Chermak on a tour. So this room here is our function room. This is where we have our events, such as concerts, plays. We had last Sunday an event here, an open house, to talk about what the Palestinian perspective is about what's going on in Gaza. We had like about 100 people here. Also, this room is used by some members of the community whenever they want to do something. In particular, there is a Jewish group that makes use of our room for their religious services. It's a group that is what you'd call a little bit off the, they're not part of the mainstream groups. They support Palestinian rights and 
tend to be friendly to Palestinians. As a result, you know, we invite them and we like working with them. And uh, we also like to show that the Palestinians have nothing against the Jewish faith. These here are children drawings. They were made in the aftermath of the 2008-2009 Israeli attack on Gaza that was dubbed Operation Cast Lead. The children in Gaza have been, not just Gaza, but even the West Bank, there's been a lot of what they call de-childing. It's a term that the Palestinians have invented <laughs> because of the reality. De-childing is when the children lose their innocence and they lose their traits of being a child and they become adults at a very early age, like at age five or six or whatever. So one of the NGOs sponsored a program where they were gave them art therapy where they show them ask them to draw what they saw during the war. And these are some of the, the works that they had, and there's 200 of them, we were showing 50 here. It is very graphic, I mean, these it are quite, quite striking. Yeah, but the, the children shouldn't even know about this, much less experience it and draw it. I mean, talk about trauma. <laughs> I mean, Gaza has the most trauma any, any place on Earth has right now. passports from the British passport from the mandate era from like the 40s and if you look on the somewhere on the passport it says government of Palestine on it this is his ID card everybody had to have an ID card the British were, were brutal in terms of dealing with their with the people in Palestine and here it says identity card government of palestine on top this blue card here is my family's international red cross rations card from 1949 my family were refugees in 48 from our village which is was right near yaffa it's called Selema. my parents had uh, 10 children in 1948 i was born three years after that where were you born then I was born in the West Bank in a town called El Bire, which is right next to Ramallah. It's kind of a twin city with Ramallah next to each other. And, you know, we had to kind of build from zero and pull ourselves with our bootstraps, like they say in English. Going back to the idea of creating the museum, in 2018, there wasn't a single Palestinian museum in the Western Hemisphere. At the same time, in the U.S. alone, there were about more than 70 museums that supported the Israeli narrative. And obviously, this is kind of a big vacuum and a big imbalance for the Palestinians not having kind of an art institution representing them and speaking for them or telling their story. And that was one of the motives behind me wanting to, to create a museum like this and be the first museum that creates this space and create this opportunity. So the museum has been open five and a half years. During the last two years, we made some really good accomplishments. In 2022, we were able to 
get accepted to do a major exhibition as part of the Venice Biennale. So we had uh, an exhibit with 19 artists and about 30 works of art for seven months. They had 100,000 visitors at least. On average, I think 50% of the people that come here are Palestinians or, and 50% are non-Palestinian, which is a mix which we really feel it indicates success for what we're trying to do. Is we're, we're engaging a broader spectrum. And I could tell you, there's nobody that comes into the museum and looks around and have a conversation with us on a tour and leaves the same way they came in. Definitely most Americans that come here, they get a whole different perspective on what this Palestine and Israel is about than what they've been told before. And we think that's a good role that the museum is, is filling now. Chris Chermak speaking to Faisal Saleh at the Palestine Museum in Woodbridge, Connecticut. And that is all for this edition of the Monocle Daily. Thanks to our panellists today, Annette Dittert and Sir Mark Lowcock. Today's show was produced by Isabella Jewell and researched by Naomi Akwe. Our sound engineer was Tamsin Howard. I'm Andrew Mullet here in London. The Daily is back at the same time tomorrow. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.